Hey, welcome back to the Not Quite Compassion podcast. This is episode number 15, entitled Blessed Are the Poor. And uh, full disclosure, I never, um, I never, these are all always one take Tonys. I, I never like re-record or edit these bad boys. But since it's been so long since I've done one of these, I was rusty. So I tossed out the old one, and we're going to do this again. So two-take Tony coming at you, uh, but it's good to be back. Uh, My plan is to go through the Beatitudes together over the next several weeks, uh, and uh, starting with Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit out of Matthew 5. And I just got done with a few papers for doctoral work. And uh, my schedule's pretty looking pretty clear till like June. So I'm excited about knocking out a good 10, 15 more episodes. Uh, and I guess call that season two, I guess. <laughs> and uh, still figured out how to do this. And, uh, and then take another break. I think it's the plan. So good to have you back. Uh, let's jump into it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there's some deviations on this beatitude by Jesus. Uh, it's also in the book of Luke. And in Luke's writing, he just says, blessed are the poor. He leaves out poor in spirit. And that's created a lot of tension among um, different branches and sects of Christianity, where conservatives will read Luke in light of Matthew, and liberals will read Matthew in light of Luke. Uh, But I contend that we should allow Matthew and Luke to stand on their own and allow for the tension that it's it's blessed are the poor in spirit and it's blessed are the poor. See, otherwise we'll go to extremes, right? We'll we'll create a social gospel that claims that um, it's the the church's work is to only take care of the um, physical needs of the world and uh, to leave the, the soul to itself or whatever. And the other extreme is a, a brand of Gnosticism that says we should only um, take care of the spiritual needs of people and ignore the um, the actual bodily needs of people. And and this can, if you're not careful, I've I've seen this. A lot of vocational justice workers, people involved in um, things like helping girls get out of sex trafficking, or refugee resettlement, or homelessness, or addiction recovery, or mental illness, these different like social issues. When they're Christians and they're involved in church, they oftentimes feel like they're like the fringe exception. They don't. They don't. Feel, they feel a bit alienated or um, isolated at times because it, it can create a sense of monasticism if we're not careful. Don't worry. Stay with me. We'll get out of this. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this. He says, by thus limiting the application of the commandments of Jesus to a restricted group of specialists. The church evolved the fatal conception of the double standard, a maximum and a minimum standard of Christian obedience. See, it's like the church could just point to like, hey, look at those awesome people doing awesome things. They're part of our church, so we can sit here and not really do much of anything. Or we'll we'll give a benevolence fund to that missionary so he goes overseas so we can keep watching Fox News and chant build that wall. You see how that like can happen? Those are extremes and probably not fair uh, representations. But yet you see how this sense of monasticism can occur within a community trying to follow Jesus. And if we're not careful, Jesus can become our monastic. See, we can worship him and be so excited and proud of all the cool miracles he did so we don't actually have to follow him 
towards the very people that he did those miracles for. Right? We can praise him as Lord and we can sing Jesus paid it all so we can ignore the part where Jesus said, you will go and do even greater things than these. Sometimes I wonder if the more difficult part is not accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but I oftentimes wonder if the more difficult part of Christianity is accepting Jesus as a human being. Like, seriously, it's harder for me because I can just, it's, it's, worship is not that difficult. Replication is far more. And I, I don't want to over-spiritualize this or jump past it, you know, that when he fed 5,000 people, maybe what he's saying is go feed 10,000. <laughs> like go into greater, like keep it practical. Don't over-spiritualize it, you know, and, and yet <laughs> we'll send missionaries and we'll pay for them. Okay, let's keep moving. <laughs> the reality, though, when it comes to the Beatitudes is that um, these, these words of Jesus are for everyone, not just the select few. In fact, this is how the, the Beatitudes begin. He says in Matthew 5, he goes, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. And now these crowds are described. The demographic of these crowds is described just a few verses earlier, if you read back in Matthew 4. And they are like the sick and the sinners and also the saints, like it, which tells us these beatitudes are for the disciples, yes, but they're also for the commoner. They're also for the crowd. They are for everyone and anyone. But while the beatitudes is for everyone and anyone, I do think it's we need to be careful that we don't make the beatitudes all about me or all about you. What I'm trying to say is um, I'm not poor. And neither are you, I'm guessing, if you live in America and are listening to this. Because comparably to the rest of the world, we as Americans are filthy rich. And yet these, these words of Jesus are directed from Luke's account towards the poor. So if it's about the poor, I, I, I don't need to like somehow become this ascetic that pretends like he's poor. I need to climb into the shoes of the poor rather than make the passage relevant to me. And the best way for the rich to help the poor is to allow the poor to help the rich, is what my professor, Dr. Metzger, has told me. And, and so it's, it's important not to make every verse about us because simply it's just not. Rather, it, it, it should encourage a sense of empathy that we, we look to learn from the poor rather than take on a, a sentiment of like a Messiah complex, which I'll, I'll come back to in a moment. What this passage is saying, uh, according to Stott and um, Dale Bruner, a couple theologians, look at me name dropping, huh? I've been reading some books, man. <laughs> this idea of blessed are the poor in spirit <laughs> is this idea that we're um, that Jesus is saying the really blessed ones, the ones that are happy, the ones that are, are, are experiencing a closeness to God. You don't want to know the ones that God's really close to. It's the ones that are spiritually bankrupt. It's the spiritually inadequate. I don't know about you, but that was not what I was taught or what I believed as I grew up in churches. I believe the blessed ones um, were the ones that were like the ultra spiritual, you know, the super spiritual, the ones that were in the front row 
of church on Sunday and don't forget about Wednesday, right? That they would praise God for finding that parking spot at Costco and they would they would listen to Spirit 105.3 safe for the whole family. I mean, and they would attend uh, a spirit-filled church. I remember like people asking me like you want to go, you go to church and I'm like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Do you go to a spirit-filled church?" Like, "Okay, those are the real spirit. Like <laughs> it's not just church. You go to a spirit but it's this sense of like this as Messier puts it, the spiritual bravo. And the beatitudes is opposite of that. I mean, Jesus is saying like you want to know the ones that are like that I'm really near to. It's the ones that um, that believe that they are absolutely spiritually inadequate, that don't have their shit together, that um, come to me from a place of of real visceral need, that don't claim to have all the answers. Those are the ones that are actually blessed according to this upside-down kingdom of God. And I have found that um, for those that experience this, this blessing of poor in spirit, I've noticed that they eliminate any sense of otherness in their, in their life. Like, because you see this, uh, this, this pattern or this journey in Peter's life. That he goes from um, the spiritual bravo to a, a spiritual brokenness, and and in in the beginning of his of his journey of following Jesus, like Peter very much had this sense of otherness. He, he wanted to stand out. He wanted to make sure that Jesus thought of him as like his right hand man, and that oh, Peter's my go to guy, and he's like the super ultra spiritual one, the spirit filled one, after all. And, and Peter would make these claims out of like these very articulate and inspiring prayers, you know. He'd be the one at Red Robin when there's a group of people that like chooses to pray publicly and everyone's like, man, can I just eat my, my tavern burger? Because, man, you're being loud about these prayers and everyone's looking and I'm feeling embarrassed. Like Peter, would, <laughs> he'd be that guy, right? Uh, he said things like this. He goes, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. He also said um, things like, uh, let's see. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And then uh, Peter experienced some brokenness. Like uh, there's this uh, scene where Jesus is getting arrested and uh, begins to get tortured and eventually will hang on the cross. And these guards come over to Peter and they're like, hey, we saw you hanging out with this guy. You guys are our buds, right? And Peter's like, I don't have any idea who you're talking about. I've never seen that guy before. I do not know him. And Peter like acts as if he totally sells out his best friend in his greatest point of need. And it broke him. He realized he didn't, he didn't have his shit together. And then a few days later... In John chapter 21, which someday I'll do a whole podcast on that because it's my favorite story in the whole Bible. But you see this scene where Jesus and Peter come back together. It's like Jesus is back from the grave. <laughs> and uh, in classic Jesus fashion, he just cooks some breakfast. And uh, then they go for a walk. And Peter's um, Jesus asked Peter this question. He's like, do you love me? And he asked him three different times. And you can tell like the pain in Peter that he's experiencing this, this brokenness, this poor in spirit. 
And and um, the in the third time, it really gets to Peter the way Jesus asks him, like, "Do you do you love me, Peter?" Which I love how Jesus just cuts through all the BS, spiritual Bravo answers and and facades and masks that we create. He just cuts through it all. And then Peter gives this request, which is not articulate and it is not inspiring. And he says, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. I I can't, I can't, um, I can't read those words of, of Peter without imagining a deep sigh behind them. You know, like, <sighs> you know what, you know everything, okay? But you know that I love you. And there's no more impressive declarations. There's no loud pronouncements. This blind ambition that Peter had it has, has finally had its eyes opened. Peter's words are few. You know, they're the words of a man who has given up trying to prove something. He has been left humbled and horribly honest. He finally realizes to whom he is talking. He's made poor in spirit. He experiences the blessing of being restored in Christ. And he uses that to build the kingdom. And it's no different with us. I mean, Peter walks away from that conversation with Jesus restored and broken and poor. And it has been eradicated any sense of otherness. Of a me versus you or me above you. Or even me helping you. At the um, Isquah Food and Clothing Bank, where I work as a volunteer coordinator, uh, I, I get asked this question. I, I got to ask this at, when I was at Union Gospel Mission too. It's, it's a common question from people. It, you know, this question is like, "How should I interact with them?" You know, them referring to like the poor or people experiencing homelessness, or how do you keep them from taking advantage of your services? And I've noticed that those who are poor in spirit, they don't. They just, they don't ask those kinds of questions because there is no them. There is no us. It is only we. You see this also in, in, in the way Jesus sends out the 72 people to go and, and share this good news of this kingdom of God, this upside down way of viewing things, you know, this countercultural like blessing, this good news. It's in the book of Luke chapter 10 and in, in, Jesus sends them out with nothing. <laughs> he tells them specifically, don't take anything with you because he wants them to experience the blessing of poor in spirit because now they have to ask for help and they think they're going to be the help, right? They think they're going to go save people and they're like, no, you actually need, and you're supposed to, they think they're going to invite people in and Jesus is like, no, you actually need people to invite you in because you won't have anywhere to sleep that night otherwise. <laughs> you love, I just love the way Jesus approaches ministry, the way he, um, his posture towards the world. And that is true. I mean, that I oftentimes think, especially when it comes to vocational justice, especially with people that are use their careers as a, as, a, as a way of caring for others, it is so damn hard for us to receive time, at times. Like, we'll give the shirt off our back, but it's so hard for us to um, receive. And yet you see in the, in the beginning of, Jesus, of Peter's brokenness, that's exactly what Jesus demanded. 
you know, there's that scene where after dinner, Jesus goes around with this, this um, towel and water. And he starts washing all his friends' feet. And you get to Peter, right? And Peter's got that spiritual bravo, which refuses to be served, which only wants to give and not receive. And Jesus makes this declaration. He's like, unless you let me do this, Peter, you will have nothing to do with me. It's like Jesus is saying, like, listen, man, if you're going to understand grace, you need to understand it's best received by empty hands. If you're going to know what it looks like to know me, then you got to know what it looks like to just sit there, Peter, and receive. Because that's the way grace works. So that you may go and freely give with no strings attached. And that's the way it works. I mean, it changes us, guys. It makes us poor in spirit. It eliminates any sense of otherness. And also, it, um, it changes us from being tourists to pilgrims. I learned this in my reading as well, that, uh, that oftentimes when we approach the poor, we approach them from the sense of uh, tourism, right? A poverty tourism as such. We want to experience the poor. We want to go on a new adventure. We want to go slumming for a week. Uh, those are crude ways of explaining, but there is that sense of just like wanting to experience it from afar and for a short amount of time. But the result of tourism ultimately is comparison, not compassion. Let me explain. Uh, a few months ago, I was in a hurry with my boys and we were in the car. We had to get somewhere. And so I was like, get in the car, let's go. And so they hop in the car and Sawyer's running in. I'm like, come on, buddy, let's go. And so he hops in and he slams the car door on his fingers. And so as a good dad, I um, I immediately look at my fingers and I hear him screaming in the back. And I'm like, I look at my fingers and I'm like, oh man, I am so glad that my fingers aren't caught in a door. Like I'm not in pain at all. Like I have all five working fingers on both hands. I am so thick. No, of course not. That's a really terrible dad. I got off my ass and I ran around the corner and ripped that door open and grabbed my boy out of the car. I, we're still in a hurry. It doesn't matter anymore. We're going to be late. Who cares? I grabbed him. He's crying. We run inside. I get some ice. Lincoln helps me. I just hold him and he cries. We just, we just sit there together. Like I make sure he's okay. We're super late. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. It's just about caring for my kid because that's what good dads do. And that's an example of compassion because staring at my fingers would be comparison, right? It's crude, I know, but it works. And that story I see played out in the way that, you know, as a youth pastor, I would go and take uh, kids to Mexico to build houses. And uh, and there's a lot of great stuff that came from it. I don't at all want to disparage the entirety of that. I actually think it's necessary to go through comparison, to get to compassion, but after we got done building houses in Mexico for a week, we came home from our tourist attraction and experience. And the prevailing thoughts among us as we flew home was, I can't wait to get back to air conditioning. Or, uh, oh man, I'm so excited to have an Xbox. And sure, the parents loved it because we got back and the kids were a little bit more thankful and they didn't complain to eat their vegetables at dinner. And so I got lots of kudos as a youth pastor, but... I don't think those kids or myself thought of the people in Mexico ever again because it was comparison. It wasn't compassion. We experienced pity. And pity is ultimately about proximity. If you keep people at a distance, you can pity them, but 
it does not survive the closer, the more intimate you get to people. See how that works? When we're blessed, when the blessing of the poor in spirit is we come, become pilgrims. So we no longer seek for experiences. We search after meaning. We don't look for a new adventure. We, we look for God. Pilgrims are those searching for Christ in the faces of the poor among us, in the margins of our world, in all the places that Jesus went and gravitated towards. Also, poor in spirit leads us to become rich in hospitality. Because it eliminates that sense of otherness, we welcome people into our homes and into our lives. I mean, Mary is a great example. Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine, which is just awesome. Oh my gosh, I got so much to say about that. It's so great. It speaks so much of the whimsy and the, and the beauty, the, the, um, the beauty, the beauty of God. But nonetheless, I love how it begins because Jesus is like, I don't know if I should do that. And Mary's like, just go do whatever he tells you to do. She tells us some servants because they need to fill up these big water basins. And Jesus like goes hocus pocus on them and turns them into this amazing wine. But the point is, like Mary understood hospitality. She sees a need at this wedding, this party. It's a fashion, it's a it's a, a party faux pas to run out of wine. I ran out of, of, uh, we were making these like uh, Moscow mules for this Christmas party. I ran out of of whiskey like in the first hour and I was embarrassed, man. I was like, ah, didn't think that through. People wanted another drink. Ah, I was killing it as bartender that night too. But like Mary understands that this matters. Welcoming and greeting and hosting people, making them feel at home. Or as the book of Philippians says, of thinking of others is more important than ourselves. She, she's, she's poor in spirit, and so she thinks of others as more important. Imagine that. Like, I can give lip service that others are more important to me, or I can pretend it. I can make you think that. I think that. But do I actually think? Do I react and respond in this world in a way in which I think of others as more important? I mean, that's... Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's what's behind this idea of welcoming the stranger. You know, when I was the least of these, you did it unto me. I mean, a stranger is naturally someone that we don't know the intentions of, right? We don't know them. And yet Jesus says to welcome them into our lives and into our homes. Um, so, let's wrap this bad boy up. Let's, let's land this plane. Um, I think this... This beatitude, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. I think it's the best version of countercultural. Now, because we, we've been sold this idea of, you know, the church is countercultural. And we take that, at least I take that to mean that we should like bring prayer back in schools and start teaching creationism and and science classes and <laughs> take back America and let's put the Ten Commandments back in the I mean, let's fight these culture wars or whatever they might be. Boys, bathrooms, and girls. It's just all bullshit. Like, I, I just, I think that Jesus's idea of countercultural is just, he plays by a totally different economic system, you know? It's just, it's so good in the best way possible. 
I mean, that's what good news is, by the way. It's good news. It's only good news if it's good news for the poor. I mean, it has to be good news for everyone in order for it to be good news. And don't forget that the crowds were poor that Jesus is speaking to. And they were walked away encouraged and refreshed. They were like, oh my gosh, this guy's for us? No one has been for us. And this one is for us. I, I just think that's amazing. It's against a culture that, that brags about its accomplishments and wants to be great in this dog-eat-dog world that we live in. Uh, Jesus connects a sense of humility and humanity that is so foreign to us at times. Blessed are the poor. And so this week, may we become pilgrims and no longer tourists. May we seek God in the eyes of the other, the divine image within the other, the Imago Dei, or, or if you want to take another version, the Namaste, right? That seeing the divine in the, in the image, in the, in, the, in the eyes of another, that we would no longer seek new experiences, but we would seek God in the margins of our world. We think of good questions rather than claim to have all the answers. We would see the shared community found among all of us who have experienced brokenness. And lastly, may you experience this blessing if you feel poorer in spirit today. I realize that that's, that's some of you that are listening right now, and I get it. Man, oh my gosh, I, like, I get it. That there's been times that my faith has been so dark that I've um, tried praying, and I'm like, what am I even doing? I'm talking to thin air. This is all just complete bullshit. No one cares. No one's listening. There's no hope. And I have found in those moments, looking back, a closeness in Christ. Like this, like this goodness that does prevail. That doubt, as Rob Bell puts it, is, is, is not the opposite of faith. It, it's the pulse of faith. It reminds us that our faith is still alive. And it's to the poor in spirit that God is especially close to. Okay? Like if you if you think you're in a in a in a, a difficult place, it might be exactly where he will meet you. I only say that because it's in those darkest moments of my faith, of my life, that I have most profoundly experienced Christ. When I just breathe that deep sigh like Peter did and just say, you know what? You know everything, but you know that I love you. May you have that walk on the beach with him. May you experience the grace of a breakfast with Christ. May you experience the grace as best received by empty hands. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Hey, we're back at it, guys. Feels good. I missed this. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it regular, too, and, and, and do another one next week. And, um, but I missed you. And uh, until next week, may you experience this grace.